the legacy of Kepler, gravitational waves and binary star systems. This and much more in today's episode of the show. So how are you doing today, Jakob? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm fine as well. Just a little bit tired, a lot of studying, but I'm glad to be sharing some knowledge with our listeners. So, about today's episode, we have chosen to start with special thanks and dedication to the NASA telescope Kepler, which was retired about two weeks ago. And we will start by giving a rough background to the telescope itself. Go ahead, Jakob. The telescope is named after the German astronomer Johannes Kepler. It was launched by NASA in, uh, on the 7th of March 2009 into a heliocentric orbit, which means that it uh, revolves around the Sun and not the Earth. It launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida using the Delta II launch vehicle that actually also was retired recently. Uh, mid-September this year, just a few months ago. The Kepler telescope entered service in May 2009, roughly a month after the launch. So by then it was already in the right orbit and I've done all the checks it needed before it could return science data. It's part of the NASA Discovery Program. That's uh, NASA's low-cost missions. The telescope part of the mission was constructed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They also managed the initial operations. The flight system was built by the company Ball Aerospace. Another NASA center, the Ames Research Center, developed the ground systems and they also took over the mission operations uh, in December 2009. The initial lifetime was planned to be three and a half years. However, a lot of noise was discovered in the data and it originated both from the telescope itself and from what it was looking at. So it was more noise than they was expecting. So the conclusion was that they had to make the mission longer to get the, the mission objectives that they were aiming to fulfill. One question. Did they have fuel enough for that? Because the reason why they retired it was the telescope ran out of fuel right now. Did they plan for longer? They usually don't plan to get fuel longer than they absolutely have to because of the weight. So the initial lifetime was planned to be three and a half years. And after roughly three years, they they planned to make the lifetime longer of the telescope. But in 2012, almost three years after the initial operation started, one of the spacecraft's four reaction wheels broke. And the reaction wheels are used to point the telescope in the right direction. It could still do the job um, that it had to do the main mission using three, uh, the three remaining wheels, but one year later, one more failed. So NASA spent half a year trying to fix the reaction wheels, but eventually they have to give up. They could not be fixed. So what they did was to change the mission. Now the new mission was a mission to find Earth-sized planets around red dwarf stars. And where dwarf stars is a kind of star that's a bit smaller and dimmer compared to our own sun. So this second mission continued until the end of the telescope life, which was now in October 30, 2018. The Kepler mission was officially announced to be over by NASA since it ran out of fuel. I know you are a lot better at science than I am. How, uh, how did they do to find these planets? Yeah, I have studied about the Kepler telescope a while and used it uh, before, so I am knowledgeable enough to explain to you, I hope, about the transit method which the telescope uses to find the exoplanets. This is the most successful method so far, together with the radio velocity method, and it works in such a way that the starlight from the stars it looks at is collected by the photometer in the telescope in a period of a month during which, if a planet exists, it may transit its host star, causing a dip in the starlight. The amount of dip it causes can be different depending on the size of the planet. For example, a Jupiter-sized planet blocks roughly 1% of the starlight. From the depth of this dip and its periodic occurrence, we can, among a few other things, calculate the size of the planet and how long it takes for it to make one full turn around its star. What do you mean uh, by periodic occurrence? Talk to the, the dumb people like me. <laughs> uh, 
Right. Okay. The periodic occurrence, it just simply means that if it is a planet, it will come around to the same place again and again. So the time between two dips, no matter when you look at them, is the same. Okay. It's periodic. How successful is this method? Uh, how much did it find? It has found many. Kepler has found roughly 4,000 candidates. And candidates, we mean planets that have yet not been confirmed. Uh, and out of these, about 3,000 are confirmed by using another method. Uh, and roughly 600 of these have good estimates of mass, and about 3,000 have good estimates of the radius. Uh, from the transit method, you can find the radius, and mass can be found by uh, radio velocity, for example. That's quite a lot of planets confirmed. Exactly. 3,000. How many of those would you say is uh, Earth size? Uh, for the moment, I have no exact numbers, but in 2013, from the Kepler data, NASA estimated that there should be roughly 40 billion Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars in our galaxy, which is a lot. 40 billion? Yes, many planets. Uh, this is not how many they have found, uh, not quite, not even near, uh, and this is mostly due to the fact that Kepler only looked at one small part of the sky between two constellations, which is a very small part compared to the whole sky. And um, also, not all planets do transit, so there can be planets there that we have not yet detected. There are many conferred planets that have a mass that is a minimum, not the actual mass. When we have such cases, it can be difficult to determine if the thing that is transiting the star is actually a very small star or a brown dwarf that does not have so high luminosity, doesn't shine much. In those cases, we do not know if that's the minimum mass is actually a much bigger one. In a brown In, dwarf, it's a, a small it's a star, right? a small star that, if I remember correctly, either doesn't fusion at all or... It has just barely very small fusion of hydrogen to helium, yeah. the first stage. I think it's the later one. Because so it's a very, very dim star. Very we faint star. We talked about the red uh, dwarfs before. They are even dimmer than our own star. Uh, these brown dwarfs are one, one, <laughs> one uh, level less of you can uh, luminosity. That they are, you can say that they have the lowest luminosity out of all stars we know. Yeah. The faintest ones. Okay. So... When you see something transiting, there can be some problem telling if it's a planet or a brown dwarf star. Exactly. If we only can find the minimum mass due to the inclination of the orbit not being edge-on, then we cannot say always for sure if it's a brown dwarf or a planet. In order to come around this problem, we can look at other things, such as electromagnetic activity on the star and to conclude if it is a brown star or a planet. And this can be done by, um, if, there, if it is a brown dwarf orbiting the star, it'll, have, it'll cause most, much more electromagnetic activity on the star than a planet would. So if there is low electromagnetic activity on the star, we can conclude finally that it is a planet, not a brown dwarf. Okay, so this if it is a brown dwarf, the parent star would have more electromagnetic activity. So exactly. you could just look at the starlight from uh, from the star itself and, and see if it's a brown dwarf that orbits it. Correct. Yeah, cool. because a brown dwarf is bigger than a planet and it can cause more disturbances on the star uh, as it pulls and drags to gravity. Due to all of this, we usually need more than the transit method to confirm a planet. So Kepler has always just gave us candidates that have been confirmed by another method, such as radio velocity, usually. So, after all of this physics, we can finally give us just a little summary of what the Kepler mission gave us today. It gave us a very big statistic of planets, showed us that they have diverse natures, such as they could be rocky or icy, uh, meaning more like Jupiter or more like Earth. They could have different sizes, and many of them have shown to be much different than the planets we know from our solar system. It has also shown that planets are very common, even the small ones. And it is also clear that the number of planets outnumbers the number of stars. 
We have also found the most interesting things out of the whole search here. Planets around habitable zones, planets in habitable zones around other stars, and some that show possibility to be in rocky planets with liquid water, which is exactly what we want to look at when we are searching for alien life. So rest in peace, Kepler. And now let's go on with our interview with Mr. Ross Church. Space podcast, and we are very pleased to have lecturer Ross Church here with us, who will be talking about gravitational waves, black holes, and binary systems. Welcome. Thank you. We could start by knowing a little about you, your background, such as where did you study, and also when did you get interested in astronomy? So I studied physics as a student actually in Cambridge and I was interested in astronomy when I was a child but then the idea of going into research came from doing a summer project with one of my lecturers whilst I was an undergraduate and that was on colliding galaxy clusters and it was fun and interesting and I thought I wanted to do some more of that. I went on to do a PhD, also in Cambridge, looking at the evolution of binary stellar systems. And then after that, I came to Lund for a brief postdoc appointment and then to Monash University in Melbourne for two years. And then after Melbourne, I came back to Lund, where I've been ever since. The interest or passion for astronomy, is that something you had either from your childhood or did you just stumble into the field? I, in a sense, more stumbled into it, actually. I realised at university that I wanted to study physics because I found the way that you understand the real world with mathematics very interesting and appealing. And then astronomy turned out to be one of the more interesting bits of physics because it offered a wide range of physical processes and scales and sizes and times and so forth, and, and lots of interesting problems left to work on. So that was how I got into it, really. It was it was more of a random walk into something that I found fun to work on. What is your current research area? Is it what we will talk about later, or is it something different? I work on a lot of things, actually. Some scientists like to focus very much on a single area and be very deep in that, and some are relatively broad, and I'm perhaps more somebody with broad but not so deep interests. But everything I work on is really connected to the physics of stars and systems of one or more stars, like binaries and stellar clusters. And the things we're going to be talking about, black holes, compact binaries and gravitational waves, form a big part of what I'm working on today. We can then dive in the subject. We can start by explaining what is a binary system. The Sun is what we call a single star. It is isolated on its own within the galaxy. There are no other very nearby stars to it. But actually, we think the majority of stars like the Sun aren't like that. Instead, they have a companion star, typically perhaps around 10 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, And the star and its companion orbit one another. They're bound together by the gravitational force. They orbit then around their common centre of mass. And these objects are called binary star systems. They're very common, as I said. The majority of sun-like stars, about two-thirds or so, are in binary systems. And for the most massive stars, almost all of them are found with companions. How are these formed? Are they formed in a cluster or do they later come together? So we don't actually know. It's um, a topic of current research as to why some stars form single and some stars form binary. We think that all stars form in groups of one sort or another. And we're very confident that the binary systems form binary when they're born because it's very hard for one star to capture another star that's from the field of the galaxy. 
But what we don't know is how much the formation of a binary is to do with the initial state of that particular little cloud of gas that collapsed to form those two stars, and how much it's to do with interactions between stars in the cluster where the stars were born. Are binary systems just two stars usually, or can there be more than two? There are systems of more than two stars. We generally don't call them binaries, though. They're called triples or quadruples and so forth. And this is an increasingly hot topic of research, actually, is understanding the effects on the lives of stars of of having more than one companion. So in particular, in triple systems, the orbits of the three stars can interact in such a way that then makes the stars themselves interact, that brings them close enough that they can interact with one another. And then on a larger scale, many stars are part of clusters, so groups of tens to millions of stars that are all bound together but moving in a much less well-ordered way than the two stars in a binary move round one another. Binary stars or triple stars, they interact with each other. That means they, some one star steals some mass from the other. Is it both ways they give and take, or is it mostly like one star take all the mass from the others? It depends on the system, but typically what happens is... Of the two stars, they typically have slightly different masses, or sometimes very different masses. And the more massive a star is, the shorter its lifetime is. So a star like the Sun will spend about 10 billion years stably burning hydrogen into helium in its centre and not changing very much. But a more massive star, say 10 times the mass of the Sun, will will do this for only around 10 million years, which on a stellar lifetime is rather short. When a star has exhausted its, the hydrogen at its centre, it swells up and turns into a giant. So its outer layers expand and become very large. And when that happens, it, the mass in those outer layers, if it's in a binary, can become more bound to the companion star than to the star it comes from. And then, indeed, the companion will steal the mass from the the surface of that giant star. And this process is called mass transfer, and it can proceed in lots of different ways. If it's stable, so the mass continues flowing across at at a relatively constant rate, then that could build up the mass of the companion star... Um, speed up its evolution, make it do more interesting things from the point of view of, of an astronomer. Or an alternative is that the mass transfer can run away and you end up with a big cloud of gas enveloping both stars. And when that happens, we think that it drives the two stars in the binary closer together. The process of expelling that cloud of materials steals energy from their orbit and drives them into a much tighter binary than they were in to begin with. That's very interesting. It's an interesting aspect to study the lives of these stars. We know that a star, when it's to its end, it can explode and either become a supernova or a planetary nebulosa and leave something behind. What happens if they are in a binary system? Can they still form a black hole and what would that lead to? Yes, so we think that stars in binary systems, the, the more massive ones, do still form neutron stars and black holes. The, the products that we get after the supernova explosions that come at the ends of the lives of massive stars. And we know this for, for several reasons. One is that we see, actually observe in the galaxy binary systems where both stars have undergone supernova explosions and collapsed into neutron stars. The neutron star is a very compact, dense stellar remnant. It's a a star mass object made entirely of neutrons, and so about the the size of a a small city like, say, Malma, but with a mass around one and a half times the mass of the Sun. And we see pairs of these neutron stars, as they're called, in binaries in the galaxy. We see them actually through radio emission. They're called pulsars, because we see regular pulses of radio waves coming from them as they spin. 
And we know now, actually, because of gravitational waves, we know that we can also get pairs of black holes forming in similar binaries, but probably ones that had initially more massive stars and also stars made of less metal-rich material. Then we could go on to talk in a little about gravitational waves. What are they and where did they come from? Gravitational waves are basically ripples in space-time itself. So in the same way that electromagnetic waves, so light and radio waves and so forth, are disturbances in the electric field propagating outwards from some source, so gravitational waves are disturbances in the field of space-time itself. So in practice, what does that mean? as a gravitational wave passes through an object, it gets simultaneously squeezed in one direction and then stretched in a perpendicular direction. And that is as one wave front goes past. Then as the next wave front goes past, it gets squeezed and stretched in the two opposite directions. The thing is that gravitational waves are very small in amplitude, so this squeezing and stretching effect one can't see simply by looking at the space. It's the most powerful gravitational waves we've observed have a squeezing and stretching amplitude of about one part in 10 to the power 21. So they're extremely weak phenomena, which is why we've only managed to discover them in the last few years. So I think the first paper published discussing them was by Poincaré, in um, 1905, but that was purely speculated that they should exist. There was no real working out there. But when Einstein published the theory of general relativity, um, he'd realised that because you had a space-time field, it should have waves in it. And along with other researchers at the time, he spent some time trying to find solutions within the theory of general relativity for those waves and to work out whether they should exist or not. There was quite a lot of debate about this in the early parts of the 20th century. But by the 1950s or 1960s, it was fairly clear that there should be wave-like solutions of the general relativity equations and that those waves should propagate at the speed of light and represent these very small changes in the space-time. And so people started building detectors to try to discover them. The detector that has discovered these is LIGO. Yeah. How did they detect them? How does it work? So LIGO works in the simplest sense by looking for the change in length of an object as this gravitational ripple, this ripple in space-time, passes by. And to do that, because the amplitude is very small, you need a very large object, and you also need an object that you can measure the length of extremely accurately. So the thing that's used is a Michelson interferometer. So it's a, a vacuum tube. In the case of the LIGO detectors, the tubes are about four kilometres long, and they have a mirror at both ends. So a beam of laser light is sent through this tube and reflects off the mirror and interferes with itself as it comes back again. So one gets then an interference fringe, and you form that from two perpendicular tubes, because you want to look for this unique signal of the gravitational wave is that one tube gets longer at the same time as the other is getting shorter, and then vice versa. So that sounds like a very straightforward measurement, and the problem is entirely in the fact that the gravitational wave has this very small amplitude. So the signal that you measure is entirely dominated by other signals that you're not interested in. So things like seismic noise is a big problem from cars passing maybe many kilometres away from your detectors. So the technical challenge in building LIGO and Virgo, which is the European counterpart, 
has been to suppress all the different sources of noise. And that's done by having a multi-stage pendulum system from which the mirrors that reflect the laser light are uh, suspended. And then there's also a challenge actually in building a sufficiently stable and powerful laser to allow these very precise measurements of the distance of the lengths of these two tubes of the interferometer to be made. So then finally, the last step, having constructed one of these pairs of interferometers, LIGO then built a second one in a different place in the United States. Because if you see a gravitational wave pass through, you should see it in both detectors. If you only see it in one, that's a very good indication that what you're looking at is a spurious noise signal. And also, the f- you see the signal in one detector slightly later than in the other. And that time distance lets you work out which direction in space the gravitational waves were coming from. Though you don't get a very precise measurement, it's enough to let you start looking at that part of space with other more traditional astronomical instruments, so telescopes on the ground and in space, to see whether there's any corresponding signal that you can measure from the astronomical event that's created the gravitational waves. So noise is a very big problem here for Mm. uh, detecting these waves. One place where there is no course to make any noise is in space. And we have the LISA uh, Pathfinder probe that was launched some time ago and uh, that's also detecting gravitational waves and in the future we have the LISA spacecraft that will be free spacecrafts separated in vast distances to do similar things as LIGO. Yes, so LISA Pathfinder itself did not actually detect gravitational waves but it was, as its name kind of gives away, it's a Pathfinder mission, so designed to test the technology that will let us find gravitational waves in space. So in particular, you you need to take a a test mass, which is a, a big lump of gold, basically, that you then hold inside your spacecraft without touching it. So the spacecraft has to fly around it, actually, and it shields this test mass from the effects of micrometeorites and cosmic rays and so forth. And then the other thing that was tested on on Pathfinder was that you have to measure very precisely the position of that mass because you need to construct a measurement basically of when the final LISA instrument is built, it will have three of these masses arranged in an enormous triangle with arms billions of kilometres long. And you need to measure then the lengths of those arms very precisely because they form, like the LIGO and Virgo interferometers on the ground, they will form a giant space-based interferometer. So there are two big advantages of being in space. One is that you don't have the seismic noise, but the other is that you can make an object in space that's bigger than the Earth, fundamentally. So so LISA will be larger in size than the Earth, and that lets you measure different gravitational waves, so ones at longer wavelengths and hence lower frequencies. So it gives you a, a probe into a different set of objects in the universe. Looking for gravitational waves, what's the best result you can hope for? If you get some kind of signal, some very strong signal, is that the best thing or what are you looking for? There are lots of different possible science cases. So with merging binary systems, and those are the gravitational wave sources we've seen so far, then the stronger the signal is, the better you can characterise the binary. But actually the most science that we've got out of any of the six detections we've seen so far has not been from the brightest signal but it was from the one where there was also a corresponding source seen in gamma rays and in x-rays, and then ultimately in visible and infrared light. So that was actually the most recent detection, and that was from a merging binary with two neutron stars in. We see these binaries in the galaxy when they're 
quite far apart. So the ones in the galaxy that we see are typically from a few to a few tens of radii of the sun apart. And as they orbit one another, the neutron stars bend the space-time around them, and so as they orbit, that changing space-time sends out gravitational waves. In the same way, as an analogy to moving objects on the surface of a lake, would send out water waves going out from the object. But the binaries in the galaxy, the gravitational waves they send out are very weak, so we can't detect them. We can only detect their effects on the orbits of the binary. But as the binary comes closer and closer together, their orbits are faster, and that means that the rate at which they produce gravitational waves increases. So in the end, as they become very close, close to touching, one gets a runaway process called a chirp, where the two stars spiral together finally and merge. And it's the gravitational waves from those chirps that we see in the LIGO detectors. So the signal that they look for is a signal that starts out at a constant frequency of, of gravitational waves and then rises, gets louder and suddenly cuts off as the two stars merge. So for the binary neutron star event, we saw this signal in gravitational waves, and then about a second later, we saw a burst of gamma rays coming from a galaxy in the local universe, so around 100 million light years from uh, Milky Way. This was very exciting because we've seen those bursts of gamma rays from nearby and, in fact, rather more distant galaxies before, and a lot of people had worked on what they might be, what might be producing them, since to make gamma rays bright enough you can see them from those distances, they had to be very energetic events. And people had thought that they might well be merging binaries of two neutron stars, but there'd be no way to test that hypothesis, really. There was lots of indirect evidence for it, but no direct evidence. But this detection in gravitational waves really tells us everything about that burst, because we now know that it was two neutron stars, we know the masses of the two neutron stars, and then we saw the flash of gamma rays and the corresponding afterglow in optical and infrared light in the same part of the sky, so we know that they come together. And that lets us dig much more into the physics of this event and what was going on. Very cool. And we were talking about the gravitational waves need to come from something that's very energetic, and neutron stars merging is exactly that. But can we see the same gravitational wave signal, or even stronger one, if we have two black holes merging instead? Yes. So black holes are more massive than neutron stars, and what that means is that they have a larger effect on the space-time they're moving through. So... The brightest gravitational wave signal we've seen so far was in fact the, the first one that LIGO detected after its upgrade in 2015, and it was from two massive black holes, about each of them 30-something times the mass of the Sun. And because these black holes are so much more massive, they create strong, much stronger gravitational wave signals. It also means that they merge much more quickly so the event was very bright, but it was also rather short-lived. And we can see these merging binary black hole systems from much more distant galaxies. That's very exciting, because before the first LIGO gravitational wave event, we really didn't know that there were close, compact binary star systems containing two massive black holes. There's no way to detect those things other than by seeing the gravitational waves because the black holes are black. They don't emit light when there are just two of them orbiting one another. And there's now a race on, really, to understand how you make these very massive black holes, how they end up in binaries with one another, and what the key processes are that cause them to, to form and get close enough that they can merge by emitting gravitational waves. When they merge... Do they just merge and become another 
they go black hole or what actually happens? Yes, they merge and exactly that become another more massive black hole. But as they do so, they radiate a very large amount of energy in gravitational waves. So the total energy emitted in gravitational waves, the total rate of, of production of energy in gravitational waves during the very last moments the first black hole merger seen by LIGO, the calculation is that it's larger than the energy output in stars in all the rest of the universe put together at that moment. But it goes out in these gravitational waves that have only a very tiny effect on the space-time and so are hence so very challenging to measure. But then, as you said, the outcome that you get is a single black hole. It starts out rather dumbbell-shaped because it's formed from the merger of two spherical black holes. So after the merger, what we see is what's called a ring-down phase. The fact that you have this rotating distribution of mass, which is non-spherical, it's all buried inside the black hole event horizon, so we don't see any light from it. But we do see gravitational waves as it relaxes down into a smooth spherical distribution. And that ring-down process is very interesting to people who study the physics of gravity because Einstein's theory of general relativity makes you can use that, you can solve the equations numerically to make concrete predictions as to what that ring-down phase should look like and how quickly it should turn off and what its frequency spectrum should be. And so far, everything that we've seen from the gravitational wave experiments fits exactly with predictions from general relativity. So one of the things people were very excited about in seeing these gravitational waves was testing general relativity in what we call the strong field limit, where the gravitational field is strong enough that you're really substantially distorting the space-time around it so that you need a non-linear theory of gravity to actually test what the results will be. That's the most challenging thing for any theory. There's been a whole industry of constructing theories of gravity that look a bit like general relativity in the weak field limits, so the sorts of things that we can test with other astronomical phenomena. But then the strong field limits, it seems so far everything that we've observed has been consistent with the predictions you would make from general relativity. You're talking about these mergers of these massive black holes. So when they merge... They might uh, spew out some uh, debris just when the same as two planets would. And this debris, does it form a ring and planets? And what could we expect from those planets, if so? So, with neutron stars merging, to take a step back, mm. we do see debris from the merger. As the neutron stars merge, they touch at a point, and at the opposite points you get material spilled out away from the direction of the merger. And that forms tails of material. And that material that's ejected is extremely neutron-rich, and it decays into heavy elements that are radioactive. And the infrared light that we see at late times from this merger that we detected after with the gravitational wave signal, that comes from the radioactive decay of so we see that they are unlikely, however, to form planets because the material is ejected out from the merger at some substantial fraction of the speed of light. So it's of order 10% of the speed of light. So even if it is bound to the neutron stars, it will form probably a very low density cloud of material around them. For the black holes, though, Again, general relativity predicts that all the material should stay within the event horizon, so nothing gets out. If that's the case, then there won't be any disk of material to form things from, but also the event will be completely dark in electromagnetic radiation. So you wouldn't expect to see any corresponding signal in visible light or in x-rays or in radio waves. And after the first few black hole mergers, people put quite a lot of observational effort into to looking for signals of transient events at the same time as the black hole mergers. And basically nothing convincing has been found. So that fits with the expectation that you would see anything, although it's in a sense 
it's always slightly disappointing to be correct in a situation like that. And there are some models as to how you might get a visible signal out of these events, but they generally rely on having a disk of ordinary matter surrounding the binary in some way, where the change of the gravitational field during the merger messes up that disk of material so it interacts with itself and then somehow produces visible radiation. But these are ideas that are a bit hopeful, I think, probably, rather than realistic. But if we have, for example, two stars, and during their life, and planets have been formed in this place, so either around one of them or both of the stars, and when they die, say that that planet somehow survives that too, and when they die and become black holes, and it survives the merging as well, even though that seems extremely <laughs> lucky, what would happen to that planet? Could it still somehow be in an orbit around that merged black hole? What would that mean? Would it be interesting in any way? There's a number of things to unpick here. Let's start at the end. If we have the pair of black holes merging and there's a planet which has somehow survived and ended up orbiting around both of them, then that planet would almost certainly survive the black hole merger event. It would be a pretty desolate planet, though, because there's no energy coming out from the black holes. It would be extremely cold, settle down slowly to be the same temperature as the background in space, probably. And so not very habitable. And it's also unlikely we'd be able to detect it. So those planets could potentially be there. The challenges all come earlier in the process. So if we have a planet orbiting one black hole as it slowly spirals together to merge with the other one, the most likely outcome for that planet is either that it will be swallowed by the other black hole or that it will be kicked out of the binary system entirely. The chances of it ending up in a circumbinary orbit are relatively small. And the other challenge is whether the planet could have existed around these very massive stars in the first place. So we think that planet formation is a process that probably takes at least a million years, maybe a few million years. The way we think it happens is that first the stars form, and the majority of material falling in on any forming star ends up in the star itself. But some of it ends up in a thin disk around the star called a protoplanetary disk. And that disk then becomes thinner, it drains itself slowly of gas, and the dust and other solid materials in it stick together, probably to form small pebbles that then aggregate together into lumps that end up as planets. And it's that process going from the thin disk to the planet mass lumps of pebbles that takes probably around a million years. So around a star like the Sun, that's fine. But if you have a star that's 10 or 50 times the mass of the Sun, it's extremely hot because massive stars are much hotter and its surface produces large quantities of ultraviolet radiation. And that radiation will completely strip material from the disk surrounding the star. So one challenge in planet formation is not only in, in forming planets around a massive star, but in avoiding nearby massive stars boiling away the disks around stars like the Sun. The surroundings of a massive 10 or 50, say, solar mass star are extremely hostile for trying to keep one of these disks around for long enough to form planets. Where do we find these binary black holes? So the simple answer to that is that we don't yet know. And the reason for that is that the only way we can tell where the gravitational waves are coming from is by the time delay between seeing them in the different detectors. So we now have three detectors, with the Virgo detector having come online in 2017. But even then, the combined time delays between the three detectors still leave you with enormous patches of sky to survey. So in the absence of any other electromagnetic signal, any light-based signals from these events, we can't really pin down exactly where they're coming from, because the relevant box contains enormous numbers of galaxies of all different um, types. With the binary neutron star signal, though, because though we did see the electromagnetic counterpart, though we really can identify the galaxy and in which part of the galaxy the signal came from, it's 
a kind of transition object between a spiral galaxy and an elliptical galaxy. And we saw the merger from relatively far out in that galaxy. And that's to be expected because the supernovae that form the neutron stars that then go on ultimately to merge, there are explosions in which material is ejected from the progenitor star that forms the neutron star thousands of kilometres per second. So when that happens, it gives the binary a big kick in one direction. And that kick can push the binary out into the outskirts of the galaxy that we see it in. Have we seen any such binary systems of neutron stars before merging or even after, or binaries of black holes inside our galaxy? So in our own galaxy, in the Milky Way, we see a number, it's around 10 binaries containing two neutron stars. Most of those are sufficiently wide that they'll never merge, or rather that the time scale for them to merge is much longer than the present day age of the universe. So they'll get there eventually, but in the very distant future. One or two of them are close enough that they will merge in around 100 million years or so. And it was actually those closer binaries that gave us the first indirect detections of gravitational waves, because as they orbit one another, they are emitting gravitational waves, although much weaker waves than we see with LIGO. And that changes the periods of their orbits very gradually. And because they produce these very regular predictable pulses of radio waves, one can time those using radio telescopes and hence work out how the orbits of the binaries are changing. So we see those in our galaxy, and again we see them in the halo of the galaxy, the outer part, because they've been pushed out by the ejection of mass in the supernova explosion. Black hole binaries, there are almost certainly binaries containing two black holes in the Milky Way, but we can't see them because they don't emit light. What we do see is binaries with a black hole and an ordinary star. And if they're close enough, then the gravitational field of the black hole will attract matter from the surface of the ordinary star in the same way as two stars might do in a binary system during their evolution. But when one of the stars in the binary is a black hole and it attracts matter from the other star, that then forms a disk around the black hole, a thin frisbee-like structure. The material in the disk spirals inward. As it goes inward, it ultimately falls into the black hole. But before it gets there, it has to lose an enormous amount of gravitational potential energy because the potential well of the black hole is extremely deep. As it loses that energy, that energy gets converted into heat. That makes this accretion disk, as it's called, extremely hot. And so it radiates very brightly in the X-ray. Black holes don't emit light, but the disks around them emit lots of very energetic electromagnetic radiation that we can see with X-ray telescopes. So these objects are called X-ray binaries, and we find them routinely in the galaxy. Some of them are found in regions where stars are forming because the companion star is relatively massive, so it's relatively young. It's still hanging around the place where it was born. But some of them, which are older, are found further away from star-forming regions and even again out in the halo of the galaxy. You've been listening to an interview with Mr. Ross Church from Lund University. Now we want to see what you think about our new format uh, of the podcast. As some of you might might know, the podcast used to be in Swedish. But uh, since we have a lot of uh, interviewees, perhaps you can call it, people we interview basically, that talk English, we thought we'd do the whole episode in English. So we want to ask um, all of you what, what do you think about this new uh, this change to English. Some of the Swedish viewers might not uh, be able to follow along in the same way, but perhaps we get new viewers. So write to us and, and uh, say what you think. Uh, give us your idea. Yeah. And if, you, if those Swedish listeners who don't follow up or the English is not 
their best choice. Um, you can always email us and ask questions if you haven't understood anything, something, yeah. or you can try to Google it. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess if if we lost some Swedish viewers, they won't won't be here to answer us. So we're gonna if we do a Swedish episode in the future, we have to ask them as well. So uh, email us at rymdpodden at astronomiskungdom.se. And I know that is a mouthful. So to, f- <laughs> to find the email, go to our webpage. And so if, if you come find this episode by, for example, clicking on, uh, go into the episode page, uh, you can click on a link on the top right that says Rymdpodden, which is yeah, the Swedish name for the podcast. Uh, you will get to our homepage for the podcast, basically. And there you can find the email. Exactly. And also other episodes. So check it out. So now we have the English version of the podcast. Our Swedish name doesn't really work in English. We have some suggestions, but we also like to get your suggestions. So email them in uh, at the same email, as I said before. So some of the suggestions we have is, uh, we can just list three of them. For example, we have the We Earthlings. We have Unearth Radio and Cosmotalk. <laughs> we haven't thought of which one we like more. We have a bunch more that we have listed here. And, but we want to hear your suggestions. So tell us if you like any of those or if you can think of any other that you like. So next episode, I hope we can have found our new name. Now to something else that we are very happy for. We have received an email from a listener, Madeleine. Thank you for your email, first of all. And secondly, we have read your email and we would absolutely like to take into account and try to find a professor or someone who knows about the subject you're interested in which is the universe and how it will end or how we think that it will end such as for example big freeze and big crunch as you mentioned in your email so thanks very much for your email madeleine and to all others please send us your email and tell us what you'd like to hear about in our coming episodes you have been listening to what is for now known as Rymdpodden. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, where you can find our podcasts, so you get an update every time we release a new episode. If you like our podcast, feel free to leave a review on iTunes, so that you can help uh, other listeners to find our show. So thank you for listening, and until next time, good day and clear skies.